week I started a, ser- a sermon series called Seize the Moment. Uh, for those of you that may have been in the first service, you got to hear the whole message. The second service, we had a water baptism service, and we had five people get baptized. And, and so I kind of abbreviated the message that launched this series in the second service and encouraged those of you to go to our website where the messages are, and you can listen to the, the full message that launched this Seize the Moment. But today, the title of the message today is Come, Let's Go. Come, Let's Go. As we enter into this second message in this series, there are some things that we need to know. There is a basic construct that life is built around. It's moments that we live that shape all of the minutes of our life. And inside these defining moments are divine moments, moments that God has his fingerprints on that unlocks all of the things that we do. And our moments are determined by the choices that we make. In any of the minutes that we live, choosing, we talked last week, the ability to make a choice is the most spiritual act that any of us may ever engage in. Everything that happens in your life and in my life starts with a choice. And last week we were confronted with the word of God in Deuteronomy where the Lord says, I put before you life and blessing and cursings and destruction and we were chosen and and the lord says choose life in other words i know you're on a pathway where your life will end in destruction so i want to give you another option so choose life and we were given the opportunity that our lives are determined by the choices that we make and within that power to choose we begin to understand that that is when we've been created most like god in his image is the power to create and the power of the choices that we make I don't know about you, but in my personal spiritual journey, there are times when I recognize that the chasm between who I am and the way I'm living seems enormous compared to what the Lord promises me that my life will be like if I am completely obedient to Him. I have this sense in me that I can be something more and I can do something more if I just fully engage in what God wants of me. And perhaps in your own spiritual journey, you feel that way as well. And sometimes we get so frustrated and we we begin to end our prayers to say, God, I just can't seem to actualize the life that you've promised me with the life that I'm currently living. I don't know why the life in the Word of God looks so different than what I'm actually involved with right now, but I need your help so that I can engage fully in what you want for me. And there's a passage of scripture that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 14, and I'm going to ask that for those of you that have your Bibles that you would go there with it. There's a whole journey and a narrative about seizing the moment that is unwrapped for us there. And before we get to the word, let me just pray over you this morning. Father, you have told us that every day is a day that you have created and that you have plans for it. It's a day that you have made, and we are to rejoice in it and be glad in it and also to engage in it. And so, Lord, I know that there are some people here that are fully engaged in your will, and there are others that are just observing. There are some that do not know you yet at all, and I pray that whatever level of spirituality that we enter in in today, that your Holy Spirit would begin to engage us there. That if there's anybody here that does not know the joy of having a life that has lived under the forgiveness of what you have done for us, that today would be that moment that they would choose life. And the Lord, for those of us that know you, that we would begin to make some decisions that would allow us to step into the newness of what you desire for us. And so, Lord, as we unlock your word today, would you let our minds capture your love? 
And may our spirits be inspired in Jesus' name. Amen. In each week of this series, we're going to unwrap a principle that comes from this story. And that principle will unlock a power that is within your life as you live for the Lord. And these principles are built around a story that's found in 1 Samuel 14. And it's the story of Saul and his son Jonathan. Beginning with verse 1 in chapter 14, it says this. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijai wearing the ephod. He was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. And no one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Boses, the other Senek. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash and the other to the south toward Gibeah. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. And I'd like to hesitate and pause here. The story continues, and we certainly will unwrap the layers as we come in the following weeks, but I want you to pause here, and I want you to see something. Because there is one phrase here, in particular, that Jonathan mentions twice, or at least it's recorded twice, whether he said it twice or not. It was brought to our attention as something that's very important. And if you have a Bible and you want to underline this, it was the word, come, let's go. Come, let's go. Oftentimes in our spiritual journey, we don't seem to understand why things are not activated. Have any of you ever asked God, why aren't you doing anything? Any of you ever, ever said that prayer? I've, I admit I've asked God that before. And somehow we have created in our spirit this idea that we are waiting for God to do a miracle so that we can jump into it. And we're waiting for God to do things in our life. And, and we grow frustrated because we're going, God, why aren't you doing anything? You're God. And I know that you're eternal and that you have all in the time in the world. But I'm running out of time. I need to see you do something. And one of the things that we do not perceive is that while we think that we are waiting on God, it's often God who is waiting on us to engage in what he's doing. One of the most powerful, distinguishing characteristics of individuals who live a life of faith and a real life of, of spiritual death is that they have learned to take initiative. They have learned to take initiative. I want you to know you are never waiting on God. God is always waiting on you. Now, here's what we come to. We say, but, 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 Pastor, I want you to know, I, some of you know just enough of the Bible to be dangerous. Because here's what your mind goes to. Oh, no, 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 Pastor. There is a scripture. It's in Isaiah, and it says, wait on God. Wait on God. And in that image, what we begin to perceive is that we have a big, fat God who is trying to keep up with us in our pace of life. That our life is like a journey and we're jogging along and, and our big fat God is sweating, trying to keep up and he's behind us he's going, wait, wait, I can't keep up with you. And he's huffing and he's puffing and that we're just moving through life at breakneck speed and our God can't keep up with us. And we've got it all wrong. 
In fact, if you were to look at the context of that scripture of waiting on God, what it really means is that it's for a person that is facing a challenge that's so big and so ominous and so terrifying that they are ready to run for their lives. And you see, when a person is about to surrender their future because of their fear, that's when you need to wait on the Lord. But we see within Scripture something that we call the pomegranate dilemma. There is this description that's given here in Scripture that I love because it's one of those moments that unwraps the essence of a person. And actually in this verse, it unwraps the essence of two different people. How many of you know that two people can be in the same moment and make different decisions that give them completely different momentums? Most of you know that. Here you have Saul and Jonathan, a father and a son, a king and a prince. Just to give you a little history, Saul is the first king of Israel. God did not want Israel to have a king. They already had him as God, but they were crying out saying, well, we want a king. Everybody else has a king. We need a king. We need somebody to tell us what to do. God goes, you don't need a king. You've got me. And they're going, no, we really want a king. He goes, you really don't want a king. And they're going, yeah, we really do. So God gave him the best king that he could find. Even the best king that you can find is not as good as having God. And so Saul becomes king and he messes up, just like we knew he would. And he started panicking. Because in this context, they, they were at war with the Philistines, and the Philistines had them outnumbered 10,000 to 1. And the Philistines had chariots, and they had horses, and they had weapons, and they had warriors. And Israel had a few thousand soldiers. In fact, the scripture says Saul had 2,000, Jonathan had 1,000, 3,000 men. The problem in this context is that the Philistines were unbelievably strategic. They knew that they were going to wipe out Israel, and so they had planned to do it in such a way that strategically what they did was they killed all the blacksmiths in Israel, taking them out. And by doing that, there was no Hebrew that was left that knew how to make a weapon. All the blacksmiths were gone. It was a brilliant strategy that was brought on by the Philistines. And so it got so bad that the Hebrews had to commission the Philistines to even sharpen their farmware. And so if they wanted to plow, they had to go to the Philistines and hire them to just sharpen the edge of the plow so that they could begin to work within their fields. And all of their farming utensils were dependent upon the Philistines. And so Israel had two swords... One sword was held by King Saul. The other sword was held by Jonathan, his son. In this case, it was who you know. No other soldier had a weapon. I was thinking about that this week. What that must have been like to be a soldier, one of those that were there, knowing that you were facing unprecedented numbers of people who were well-trained, well-equipped, and you're a soldier, but you don't even have a weapon. Only the king and his son have a weapon. And the stress that that must have caused them. And so when Saul saw the Philistines coming, his soldiers were terrified. And thousands of them ran for their lives. And Saul panicked because the prophet Samuel had not come to offer the sacrifices to God so God's favor would rest upon them. So Saul stepped out of his role and took it upon his Self, and he violated the relationship he had with God and everything was falling apart. 
In fact, the Bible tells us by the time we get to this passage of Scripture of the 3,000, there's only 600 men left. And there was no way that Saul was going to attack with 3,000, let alone only 600. Have you ever felt that God was giving you a task that you felt he was being unreasonable? Asking you to do something and you're going, can we just review the facts again here, God? Because it does not look possible to me that what you are asking me to accomplish is remotely doable. That had to be what they felt like that day. That God was giving them a challenge that was so big and the resources were so small that it looked impossible. So Saul, in verse 2, in contemplating all of his options or what to, of what to do, decides to go to sleep. It says Saul was staying under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. The description of the men that were with Saul at that particular time is interesting because what it tells us is that those that were with him had all of the political and military and religious authority that was needed to act under Saul's direction. That God was still there, the priest was still there, those that were there were everybody that he needed. And in that moment, rather than stepping into what God wanted to do, he climbed under the shade of a tree and he went to sleep. Have you figured out what your stress behavior is? Any of you ever get stressed? Not me. Some of you are really good then. I love it because I watch people in stress, and there are some people, when they really get stressed out, it's time to eat. Let's just order pizza. I, for me, it's ice cream. You know, that's the stress behavior for so many. Some, when, when they get stressed, they need a physical release. And so I'm going to the gym. Man, I'm going to run. I'm going to lift weights. I'm going to punch bags. I've got to break a sweat. I've, I've just got to do something. I can't just sit here. Then there's others that just want to be alone. You know, and people come up to them and they'll say, just stop and leave me alone. I don't want to see anybody right now. And they just begin to, to move back into their own zones, which doesn't work very good if you're married. There's some people that stress makes them physically sick. They just get sick. Some of you shop. Some of you clean. Some of you write in journals. How many of you know stress talkers that when they get stressed, they just talk? Just They don't even use commas. Just and, and they're just going, you know, just going, going, going. You, you, you don't find a place to jump in ever. They're just talking. But other people... When they are faced with stress behavior, they go to sleep. They hibernate. They face stress by getting so exhausted that they just get tired and they just close themselves off and they go to sleep and they go to bed and they want to sleep all day. And you know that you're dealing with somebody who is a, a, a stressed person that sleeps because on a good day they'll get out of bed and they'll go to the sofa and lay down again and turn the TV on and watch reruns all day long. And this is Saul's stress behavior. For whatever reason, he goes to a pomegranate tree, sees it shady, gets in the shade, goes to sleep, thinking that in that moment, all of the things, all of the problems will just disappear. But here's the problem. When you lack initiative, you'll just sleep through your dreams. When you lack initiative, you'll sleep through what God wants to accomplish. And you will never live them out. The other issue is this, depending on how you react to stress, to stress, the problems that you are trying to get away from, they never get smaller because you don't deal with them. They always come back and they're bigger. 
And we look at this and we recognize there's no way that Saul is going to avoid this problem. And in that moment, it wasn't actually Saul that initiated what God wanted to happen. It was in the middle of this that Jonathan got up and left and nobody knew. Here's the thing. As you are looking at this story over the next few weeks, if you follow only Saul's story, it would look as if God wasn't going to do anything. It would look as if God wasn't involved. It would look as if it was hopeless and nothing could be accomplished. But if you follow Jonathan's story, you realize that God had everything ready in that moment. And if they would just step into it, he would unlock it for them. It was all about initiative. I think some of the stress that Saul had was because he was living in a place of fear of what he had to lose. You see, by now... Saul is the king. He he had power. He had wealth. He had fame. He'd been selected by God to lead his people. And at some point, Saul had gotten to the place where what he had to lose became of greater importance than obeying God recklessly and without abandon. And that's a tragic reality for many of us. I would say particularly for American Christians. You see, the very things that God blesses us with become obstacles to us seizing divine moments. The more you have lived your life with God-given urgency, the more God seems to bless you. And the more God blesses your life, the more you have to lose. And the more you have to lose, the greater resistance you have to risking anything. And the more you have to risk, the higher the price it is for you to follow God. And in some twisted way, God's blessings to us become our greatest hindrances to seizing divine moments. His blessings and his gifts are for us to enjoy, but not for us to worship. Did you hear that? God's blessings are for us to enjoy, but not for us to worship. And when, we have, when what we have received from God takes preeminence over the God who received us, it's time for us to come to a place where we can willingly lay every blessing he's given us down at his feet, and I surrender all to you, O oh God. I believe it's important for us to recognize that we must celebrate the goodness of God, but we can never neglect the purpose of God in our life. And when we sit under the pomegranate tree, protecting the life that we have, protecting the things we've accumulated, living in fear, thinking that God's not going to do anything, that we're waiting for a miracle that may never come because we didn't have the initiative to step into what God wanted. What we do is we risk relinquishing what God really wants for us and we fail to seize our divine destiny. And it might not seem like much, but there's three words that separate Jonathan from his father Saul. And it's three words that will separate most of us at some point for another from realizing what God wants in our life, and it's come, let's go. Come, let's go. Interesting enough, Jonathan, when he said this to his armor bearer, did not know everything that was going to happen. He didn't know how it was all going to work out. He didn't have all of the details. He didn't have all the facts. He didn't have all the information. He just recognized that there was something stirring within him, and he couldn't just sit there any longer and do nothing. 
He had to do something. And so I can just hear him as he leans over and he says to his armor bearer, come on, let's go. I'm tired of just sitting here waiting for God. Let's see what God is doing and step into it. And in Jonathan's moment of initiative, he moved from being passive to a position of being active in what God was about to accomplish. And that's something that all of us need to know. How to move from being passive to being passionate. How do we do that within our life? I sometimes think that our dilemma is understanding understanding how God works in our real world. When I was young, probably like most of you, my mom and dad taught me how to say thank you. If, if somebody did something nice for you, if they opened a door or something, that you would, you would stop what you were doing, recognizing their gesture, and you would say thank you. And just about in every case, after you would say thank you, they would acknowledge that by saying, you're welcome. You're welcome. As I entered into faith, I began to see that change a little bit. Because as we get into faith and as we get into the church, somebody does something nice or, they, or you hear our worship team and they sing well. They lead us well into the presence of the Lord. They, you know, our, our children's ministries and our children's pastors, they, they do such a great job with our children. And, and, and so in the ministry circles and in the Christian circles, we begin to change things when people would come up and say, I just want to thank you for that message. I just want to thank you for what you do. And, and we, we stop and go, oh, oh, don't thank me. That was all the Lord. Don't thank me. That was God. That was all God. It's, it's almost as if somewhere along the line in our faith world, we have taught people that if they receive thanks, that they're stealing from God his glory, or they're stealing from God his fame, or the honor that is due him, and they're, oh, no, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. I'm thinking, no, I'm going to thank you, and I'm going to thank the Lord. i got enough thanks for all of you. And then we would respond as if they didn't get it when they say, no, please don't thank me. Just, it was all God. It wasn't me, it was the Lord. And I'm thinking, you know, I looked at you, it looked like you. You know, I'm, it seemed like it was you. It sounded like your voice. You know, when it happened, I saw your face. I heard you. I'm pretty sure it was you. Oh, no, 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 no. It wasn't me, it was the Lord. What I believe happens is that you were inspired by God, you were informed by God, you were impressed by God's spirit to act, but you took the initiative to walk in obedience to do something that God wanted you to do, and in that moment of taking initiative, somebody else recognizes it, and we have grown to the place where we feel as if we can't just say, you're welcome. It doesn't rob God of his glory for you to recognize that you've stepped out in initiative. I don't think it's confusing to God. I don't think he's going, oh, great, you took the credit for what I was doing. I don't think he sits there on the edge of heaven waiting to to slap you upside the head because you said you're welcome. I believe that we have, in the church world, begun to think that if we step out in initiative and if we do something for the Lord and if it turns out good and people say thank you for it, that it doesn't reduce his glory to simply say you're welcome. We can respond and say, I am so thankful that God used me. I'm thankful that he gave me a moment where I could step out on initiative and be obedient. But we have taught people a spiritual mindset that anything that is good that we do, it's God. Anything that we do bad, that's on us. If it's good, it's God. If it's bad, it's my fault. And this 
spiritual fallacy will keep you from ever living the life that you were created to live because you need to understand that you were designed by God to take initiative. You were designed by God to do something, not just sit there passively. And we have the mindset that everything we do is wrong, that this is us, and everything that we do that is right, it's all God. And so what happens is we create a subtle tension. If I do it, it's going to be bad. So what it does is it leaves one option in life for you. That means that you have to live your life in neutral. You can't take initiative. You can't be proactive. You can't act because if you act, it will destroy. Because only God creates. And so you have to live your life in passivity. And here's where we are, especially as an American church. We have thousands and thousands of Christian people whose lives have been dedicated to the Lord that are sitting passively in our churches doing nothing, waiting for God to do a miracle. I just want God to do something. I'm looking for a place where God's going to do something. And he says, I have created each of you to actively involve yourself and have the initiative to get up and do something so that I can unlock for you the pathway that I have for you. Some are just hoping that God will do a miracle and God is just hoping that you will create, get up and understand you will create it to just do something good. Say, Pastor, where's your scriptural background for that? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. It says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do i could preach a whole message on this idea that god has prepared in advance for you to do something does that not just tell you that he has prepared something and he's waiting get up get up i've prepared it for you just take the initiative and do something get out of the passivity crawl out from under the tree wake up church the miracle is waiting for you to take initiative the wonderful thing happens when people become passionate about doing something. They become proactive. They take initiative, which is good. And the more you do, the more your passion ignites other people. My wife and I had a very, very deep conversation this week, and she told me that she's figured me out. She said, Doug, I can narrow down your life to four passions. And I said, really? She goes, number one, you're passionate about your relationship with God. It's okay. She goes, number two, you're passionate about our marriage and our family. I'm going, okay. She goes, number three, you're passionate for the ministry and influence of Grace Assembly. I'm going, okay. And she says, and number four, you're passionate about hunting and fishing. <laughs> she says, I have figured you out. She goes, because here's what happens. You are either thinking about how you're going to do something or you are actively doing one of those four things just about your entire life. Apparently, I'm not hard to figure out. So I took that challenge, and I looked at my wife, and I said, I'm going to figure you out. I'll let you know how it goes. You see, once you're moving in a direction, 
that is aligned with the character and the heart of God, you find God's personal mission for your life comes into focus. Because here's what happens, and I hear this especially a lot among our, our students' lives and, and, and our college students and young adults are going, I'm, I'm just waiting around for God to show me what he wants me to do in life. What, what is God's will for my life? And we spend so much time wasted sitting there trying to figure out the one little path that we think that God is trying to hide from us rather than saying God has created us to do good works. Let's just get up and take the initiative and do something and begin to unlock whatever it is because God has given you your passions. He's given you your desires and he gives us the desires of our heart. So if you're following what you love to do and you're in the heart and the character of God, chances are he's waiting to unlock the miracle for you to step into. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 27 says this. Do not withhold good when it is within your power to act. That's a powerful statement that indicates to us that we have a power to act within our being. I was talking to Paul Sylvia the other day, one of our members who went on the trip to Ecuador, and I asked him, I said, how, how did you know that you were supposed to go? He says, when it was brought up, he says, I just instantly felt this presence of the Lord saying, you got to go on that trip. And he said, and I got up that very day, went, and I signed up because I knew I needed to act. And he says, that action, that obedience changed the way I look at missions forever. And I said, I believe that there are these promptings that we get within our heart and we've learned to resist them because we think that can't possibly be God because that's way too adventurous for me. Oh, no, 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 no. That's exactly God because he wants to lead us on an adventure that will change us. And it is within your power to act on the initiative that he has given us. God never promised us that we'll know everything about the future or even that we will live without the mystery in the present. But what he does promise us is that we can live life to the fullest. In fact, I love John 10.10. 10. It's one of my favorite verses, but as I begin to look at it through a new lens, when it says that he has come to bring us life and life more abundantly, here's what I begin to think. I think that God's intention for us was to always lead us on spiritual adventure, but the life more abundantly comes following our obedient act of initiative in what he's placed upon our heart to do. It's not that he comes and just gives us something. He says, get up and enter into something, and then watch as life becomes more abundant in that. And so in this passage, while everybody's asleep, Someone or something woke Jonathan up. And he decided that he needed to make a difference within his world. And maybe he echoed to his armor bearer the very words that he had heard from God in that moment. But he says to him, come, let's go. And in that moment, Jonathan is about to pick a fight. He is stepping into a battle that is his father's. But his father didn't have the courage or the resolve to step into it. And it tells us in verse 1, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man bearing his armor, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. And it says, But he did not tell his father. I, I think that is a powerful key verse. He didn't tell his father. How many of you know that we can become dream killers to other people? That we literally have the ability with our words or our attitudes to have people come and share the dreams on their heart, feeling what God is leading them to. And, and especially as parents and grandparents, we have the ability to kill the dream that will let our fear infest our children, will let our fear infest the growth pattern of somebody else spiritually. And Jonathan, in whatever it was in this moment, decided, I'm not telling my father because I don't want this dream to be killed. I'm going to act in obedience. 
and he says, come, let's go. Let's initiate the future. And then it gives us this description in verse 4, which I think is very important. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross, to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One called Boses, the other Senek. He had to go through a pass. There were cliffs on both sides. It was a place of vulnerability. It was a place where he was at a physical disadvantage to any enemy that he was about to see. I do believe that that was an important place for him to go because I think that before we get to see the miracles of God, every one of us have to face our own shadow of the valley of death. We have to face our fears. We have to come to that place saying, I know if I take one more step that I'm getting to a place of no return. And if I get to that place of no return, I am so dependent upon what the Lord is going to do that my life or death depends on this. And I believe that every one of us have stepped into that valley and that what we determine our life's destiny will be will be whether we turn around and say, nope, I'm going to go back to sleep under the tree. Or we say, God, I believe that on the other side of this valley, as I step into my fear, that somehow you'll sustain me and somehow you'll lead me. And somehow when I get to the other side, there'll be victory beyond my wildest imagination but I choose to step into the valley of no return many times we do nothing claiming that we do not know what God wants to do when in reality we are using our indecision as a mask for our own fear and Jonathan gives us a great example of a person who just stepped into a moment he had no idea at that moment that his moment was going to turn into momentum. But nobody would have known what God was doing until he walked through the fear and walked through the past to put himself in a position where he was living the spiritual adventure that God had created for him. Defining moments are not so much defined by the moment as they are by the person who makes the choices in that moment. And I want you to wake up Grace Assembly of God, every morning with a sense that you were created for something more than this. I want us as a church to wake up and re realize that the greatest joy and desire of our heart is not just to survive the day. But the greatest joy of our heart is to say, I'm going to step across my fear, and I don't know what you have on the other side, but I am going to take the initiative, and I'm going to do something! with the hope that in the middle of that, God will unlock a promise and unlock a future and we can begin to see God move in mighty ways Then victory for you and I will be in the things that he has asked us to do good that he has prepared in advance for us to do. I'm going to ask the worship team if they would please prepare themselves to come. Jesus didn't die on a cross to give you eternal life so that you could spend it sleeping under a pomegranate tree, wondering when God was going to do something. In fact, the last hours and days surrounding the life of Jesus on this earth are literally called the passion of Christ. How odd that this moment of his life, this last few days before he gives his life for us, is called the passion, indicating that was his sole vision. Everything that kept him going was his love for you and I. And the reason... The death of Jesus is called the passion is because he wants you and I to know he was passionate about the cross because he's passionately in love with you. And some of you have got to come to that place where you believe that God loves you because you don't trust him. He hasn't done things your way in the past and so you have hesitated not knowing that what he has for you requires that you trust him with everything you've got. And that as you do, 
he begins to unlock things for you. God is so passionately angry at the broken and destructive forces of the choices that we have made that he was passionate about winning you back, justifying your sin so that you could belong to him. I want us to be redeemed children of God and understand that we are the most powerful force in the universe when we are walking in the Spirit of God. I want us to believe, church, that we are a community of hope, welcoming people home when they come to this church. I want people to understand that our vision is locally to globally, pursuing every heart with the love of Jesus. And the way we're going to do that is to be God's people, living in His power and fulfilling His purpose. I don't want it to be banners on the wall. I want it to be stamped on my heart that it's the passion and the initiative that we walk with and do everything with. So let's fight for people. Let's love them. Let's choose how we will live the moments so that we don't sleep through our dreams and what God has for us. Some of you have been so worried about doing the wrong thing. Just ask God to make you alive and passionate about something and then step into it. Because God will give you the desires of your heart. Here's what you need to know. Some of you have all the wood that you need for your altar. What you're missing is the fire. You're missing the fire of Pentecost. You're missing the fire of the Holy Spirit that can begin to ignite your heart and give you the ability to step into your moments. So let's be that people. Let's take that initiative. Let's quit pretending that we're waiting on God to start something and start believing He's created us to do good works and step in with the initiative to do something and watch what God wants to do. If